0: and uh, you got this energy. Episodes will also feature actual practical tips and answers to questions, including, well, what do I say when? And, well, what do I do when? So that you feel equipped to handle the day to day parenting puzzles we face. So pour yourself a cuppa, or lace up some shoes, or hide in your busy parent bathroom for a bit, and join me for head and heart conversations about loving and living with children walking past less often traveled. Have I mentioned I'm glad you are here? I trust that you'll be glad. Welcome, everyone. I am so glad you are here for this episode of Real World Parenting. Um, I'm thrilled to be joined by Eaton Atwood, who is going to tell us a little bit about what brings uh, her to be in this chair today. And how how we came to be here. But first and foremost, I just want to say thank you so much for being part of these parenting conversations. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for asking me. Yeah, and we, you know, we have connections in and out, and I can't wait until they end up being in person. <laughs> At some point, <laughs> they've messaged back and forth. I think that we would have good good fun uh, overlapping our folks. So I look forward to that. And in the meantime, I'm super grateful to be having this chat. We were talking a little bit about really speaking kind of heart to heart and and head to head (laughs) with parents. It's it's a really tough time right now, or it's a complicated time, a dichotomous time to be parenting a child who is navigating um, life and figuring things out as part of the LGBTQ plus community in the broadest sense of those terms. On the one hand, it seems there, there thankfully there are groups of allies who are becoming more included, in, who understand the importance of this, who are making space and not not just affirming but celebrating, not just tolerating but loving and seeing all the beauty in it. And that's and that's fabulous. And yet there's also this groundswell of folks pushing their way into courts to try to legislate what can happen in the lives and bedrooms and bodies of folks in community. So, Today, I thought we would just touch base a little bit to offer parents out there um, some thoughts and strategies. You were, you mentioned a phrase as we got ready to log on that said, like, how do we as parents um, make sure that we do our work so that we're protecting the dignity, the bodily autonomy, and the self-determination, the ability for our kids to, to truly Um, walk in their own life so and and be in their bodies and their spirits fully. Uh So tell me a little bit about what brings you to this to this topic. How do you end up sitting here willing and able to chat with me about this stuff? Yeah, thank you.
1: Well, so as you know, but your listeners do not, I am a psychotherapist in private practice. Um, Previously, my first career, I was a jazz singer uh, and toured and made records and and previous to that, did some modeling and some television acting. Uh, but throughout all that time, uh, from my earliest professional career, I was keeping a secret. And the secret was something that I discovered when I was fifteen years old. So the backstory here is that I'm 14 years old, living in Butte, Montana, and I'm the last one of my girlfriends not to have had her period. And I was panicked about it. I think somehow I knew something was different. Uh, You know, we go to the swimming pool, we're changing our clothes. My girlfriends now have like you know, breasts and uh, pubic hair and, you know, secondary sexual characteristic development. And I didn't, I mean, I had little breast buds and I was also six feet tall and skinny as a minute. So, you know, it wasn't that on, you know, mysterious, but the no body hair at all, that was a real telltale. So I felt like they had all taken this leap and I was still 12. But I towered over them. (laughs) It's a strange strange place to inhabit. So I begged my mother to take me to the pediatrician because I had heard that you could get a shot of estrogen that would start your period. I mean, who in their right mind wants to start their period? But I did because everybody else was there and I felt like I was. So they did it and nothing happened. And that was the last time I was included in doctor's office visits for the talking part. So the doctor would then talk to my mother. They did some blood work. And they announced to me that that following spring break, I was a freshman in high school, I would be going to the Mayo Clinic and I was going to have to have a surgery to remove Twisted cancerous ovaries. That is in quotes.
0: Twisted cancerous ovaries as a 15-year-old. OK. Wow. All right. And I was, I was told I'd never have children
1: biologically, and I was devastated about that. Uh, but I also had this sense that I wasn't being told everything, but I was too nervous to ask any questions. And they had trotted out cancer, and so I was really preoccupied with like, am I going to die? Am I okay? So we did go to the Mayo Clinic, and there were more closed door meetings between my mother, who was divorced from my father at this time, and he did not uh, come up to Rochester for these for this. And. I was told I would be having this surgery. And then they were going to put me on hormone replacement. And that would be that. That was the end of it. And so I did have this surgery. And they did put me on hormone replacement. And I went home. But I knew something was up. And now I'm a teenager. I'm already doing this sort of individuation process from my mother. She is keeping something from me and I somehow know it and we are at each other's throats. Mm -hmm. And one day I up and ran away from home and got on a Greyhound bus and went to Mississippi. I'm going to go be with my father, which I did. Uh, I think back now, now as a parent, I think with my son at that age, (laughs) I could have been trafficked, murdered, (laughs) But um, so my father was divorcing his fifth wife at that time. She was much younger and I loved her because she'd smoke cigarettes with me and give me beer. And I felt like I was a big grown up. And so she came down to visit. At one point, I had a little half sister that my father was raising and we stayed up and got drunk and smoked cigarettes. And she said, I have something to tell you your parents lied to you. You're really half man, half woman. And I just thought, that's it. I'm a freak. Uh, It was the only explanation for why things were so weird, all of a sudden, and the no body hair, and you know, now I've got this scar from where they did uh, what was an orchiectomy or a gonadectomy. They removed internal testes. So phenotypically, you know, I looked female. Vagina, vulva, all looked, you know, typical. Uh, but in place of ovaries, I had testes, and I did not have a cervix or a womb, uterus, or a fallopian tubes. This is called androgen insensitivity syndrome. Uh, it's gone through a few name changes. The first one was male pseudo-hermaphroditism. Okay. Then they switched it to testicular feminization. Now it's known as androgen insensitivity syndrome. So just a little understanding of this is an intersex condition. I am an intersex woman. Uh, and go by she, they pronouns. Yes. BS. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so the all human life starts out inherently female. Uh, and at a certain point in gestation, the gonads, uh, informed by whether you have XY or XX, typically chromosomes, though there are many chromosomal patterns, but the typical is XX, which is female, XY, which is male. Um, the X is always supplied by the maternal strand of DNA, and this is why AIS can run in maternal uh, family lineages. So I have XY or typically male chromosomes, but I have a defect on the X strand that renders my body cellularly unable to process or respond to androgens like testosterone. Anything that would virilize a fetus I did not have. Now, gestationally, labia and a scrotum are the same uh, yeah. organ. Uh, the penis and the clitoris, same organ. Yeah. It either goes in one direction or it goes in the other. So when you have this condition that I have complete, there are great right. Those children that are born with a partial androgen insensitivity syndrome can be born with ambiguous looking genitals. Now here's where it all gets really tricky. We have not been practicing truthful disclosure to children or involving them in any way in their care or in what happens to their bodies. There was a doctor named John Money who was a sexologist at Hopkins. And he had an idea that nurture would always win over nature in terms of gender if you got a kid before 24 months. Mm.
0: So you could could shape your child's So regardless of whatever their external parts, because we always talk about now the awareness that gender is in your head and your hearts, not your parts. But in his case, he was like, oh yeah, it has nothing to do with the parts. If you give them trucks, they'll head in this direction. If you give them dolls, they'll head in this direction. But he had no test case. This was a theory until
1: a Canadian couple with a set of uh, typical male children, one of whom had a botched circumcision and his penis was excised, and they didn't know what to do for this kid. It was, and John Money found out about this case. This was a famous case called the John Jones case. And he said, Don't worry, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna fashion a vagina. We are going, you are going to move, you're gonna change this kid's name, you're gonna do all of this kind of stuff, and you're gonna reinforce a female gender identity. This is gonna work. And he published and he published and he published, saying how successful it was. And this kid was miserable. Brenda became David Reimers and was miserable. And then around the sort of late uh, teen years, they finally broke down and told Brenda the truth. And Brenda, at that time, immediately, I use this name as it's not a dead name in this context because David wound up writing a book. Uh, wound up instantly transitioning. David was not an intersex person, right. uh, this was, but this informed all intersex medical treatment yeah. based on this work. So uh, David and it eventually wound up marrying and uh, was a stepfather and heard about what, how this research and these published papers were being utilized in the practices of non-truthful disclosure of intersex kids and uh, uh, surgically intervening for cosmetic reasons only, typically, uh, though there are some intersex variations like congenital adrenal hyperplasia that do have sometimes a medical component to it, like salt, right. etc. But in this case, we're talking yeah. about
0: cosmetic only. There's no reason. So looking and thinking the best thing to do is to look at what their body part most closely mirrors. Oh no, because here's the crass thing that gets trotted out. You can dig
1: a hole, but you cannot build a pole. So they were all feminized.
0: Ah, there is a tightness in my, and a wave of nausea in my stomach right now around the fact that these, decisions are being made with so little understanding about identity and felt experience and trying to like cover tracks to hide things and, and this is where i zoom out though and i go to like okay people thought they were being protected right doctors thought they were being protective parents thought they were making a decision that was going to make their life and this comes up all the time genuinely in different ways in the work that i do easier right as parents we want our kids to have just enough struggle to teach them resiliency, but not enough to break them or harm them (laughs) in any way, right? So- And when we're talking about
1: homophobia, and I often, in my work, I'm committed to anti-oppression in all ways. I have to work on myself daily. the amniotic fluid contains racism, homophobia, misogyny, ableism. That's what we're all steeped in. We're all infected with it, all of us. But what we're not looking at is all of the implicit bias and homophobic panic. Parents looking at their children, the babies, maybe with ambiguous genitals. Who's going to love my child? What if somebody is other than me is changing their diaper. How do I protect my kid? And this panic around, there's something about my baby that's different. So these parents are in a very vulnerable position. And then we have doctors saying it's in medical textbooks. It's of no benefit to the patient to know the true nature of their diagnosis which turns out to be ridiculous and not true because about 25 years ago, um, we started the the internet happened and intersex people started to find each other and we started to connect and organize and became activists. So back to my personal story, this was down in Mississippi. My stepmother is, told me I'm half man, half woman. And I remembered the name of my endocrinologist and I called the area code for Rochester, Minnesota, 555-1212 and got his home phone number (laughs) at two o'clock in the morning. And I told him I was going to sue him and he had no right and I was indignant and um,
0: and I love that
1: I did that. Um, yeah. But anyway, I was flown back up to the Mayo Clinic and my mother met me there. And now they're trying to tell me about all of the stuff that I just laid out, about development and blah, 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 and all of this kind of stuff. And you know what happens gestationally and chromosomes. And I can't hear any of it because the bell has already been rung. Shame and secrecy, you already gave it to me. Now I don't, what, what am I supposed to do? You thought it was so bad that no one should know about it. And I believed you. Even my parents, these institutions where you put so much trust, medicine, parents. I didn't come from a religious family, so but we can get into that too. So uh, for the next 13-ish years, This was a secret that I kept and feared that I would be found out. So I landed a soap opera gig and I'm on it for about a year, but I'm terrified because, you know, there's Soap Opera Digest, Soap Opera Weekly, blah, blah, blah. What if they find out and I'm outed? P.S., which they did on an international stage to Castor Semenya, the right. South African, middle distance, insane, talented athlete. Yeah. yeah. It was, she found out, I, I, I think Kester's uh, non-binary, they found out about their diagnosis in the news after, quote unquote, gender testing.
0: You're
1: right. So, so oh. we're talking about how do we loop this back to parents and what does this all mean? What do we do when a parent calls and says, "Uh, we think we have an intersex diagnosis and we're terrified, and what do we do? Slow down. Mm. You're not going to make any great decisions for your kid out of panic.
0: Yeah, when fear is guiding your decision-making, good things do not happen. Fear and misinformation or no information, good things do not happen. You
1: need to talk to other parents. You need to talk to adults, intersex adults. And what you'll find is that now we do, not across the board, but we do practice truthful disclosure more often now. When you have a child that is born with ambiguous genitals, are the the androgen insensitivity uh, support group for children and families Uh, and so it's under the AIS heading but there are about 30 different conditions that that are under the intersex umbrella we advise pick a pick a gender neutral name pick a gender and keep your knees bent because when the kid gets around you know (laughs) two or something they're gonna let you you're gonna start to know they will tell you a kid will tell you whether or not they're a boy if they it out they'll tell you yeah. when we present them with a binary they'll choose when we present them with some people don't feel like they are a boy or a girl they feel
0: like they're sort of in the middle somewhere
1: or neither, right?
0: Or both, or neither? Like uh, the, the that it. I love to keep your knees bent. I think that is your <laughs> hallmark. Sorry, I'm swiping that in terms of being able. Like it's such a great parenting mantra, anyway. But you know, parents aren't often or not often expecting having to keep their knees bent around gender right it's like a and a, an identity piece and so it's like sort of there's so many assumptions that we make and the more the more that there is shame and secrecy the more that it's considered something that you know gayness and transness and non binaries are considered Risks or something to be protected from, or you know, to hope that like doesn't happen, then then the then it really undercuts people's um, chances to be to be prepared and to be flexible and to let their kid let their kid lead because we we do have an internal sense of of gender, and for some people that's a more winding road. For other people, it's an arrow shot. Right, like that's what's all of it. Did did your did your parents did your parents know from from when you were born, or they didn't know until that testing when you were? I didn't come to medical attention until puberty. Sometimes the testes will
1: herniate, and so you'll have a you know that's a kiddo will come to a medical attention earlier, or the ambiguous genitals will will flag that at birth. Yeah, but. One thing for parents to remember is that we are all assigned a gender at birth because we have now medicalized birth and we are assigned a gender based on what is between our legs. What's between our legs is a biological indicator of sex, not gender. You don't know what gender your kid's gonna be. Let's, can we do away with gender reveal parties, please? The, the person who started gender reveal parties is now like, oh, what am I think? <laughs> right. Their child is
0: non-binary. And they oh, had to walk I didn't it even back. know that. Yeah, one. no, they had to walk it back. They had to go and say what I didn't know and what I wish I hadn't started. Right. They
1: know um, this keep your knees bent is that's like a surfing analogy, right? If you lock your knees, you're done. Uh, you we want to like be able to have some like shock absorption so that you can stay flexible so that you can make moves more easily, right? And I think one of the things that that we are starting to understand is that we need to preserve not our children's safety above all else, because what happens then is that we are, if we haven't done our internal work to understand our implicit bias, all of our biases, then we can be protecting them, quote unquote, from things that are central to their authenticity and their identity. So we wanna be careful about that because we wanna protect our children's dignity. And they, all human beings have a right to bodily autonomy and self-determination. So this parental panic part, it's scary. You know, we are both parents of black male children. That's scary. Across the board, no matter how you slice it. Right. But I have found, my is 18 now, I have found that leading with that fear for him doesn't do anything positive. Do I have to have some tough conversations about staying safe, that you have some considerations that your, your white peers do not have? Yes, we have to have those conversations. But I'm not going to tell my kid to never put his hoodie up. Yeah. I'm not going to do that. Right. because yeah. A, he's not going to listen to me for <laughs> one and the other thing is that's ridiculous we're not going to live our lives in fear of the ignorance of others so when we are trying to like protect our kids one thing i often find i have to tell parents whose kids are gender questioning or gender nonconforming or are, are trans and having that insistence persistence and consistency is I know you're afraid that they will be victimized with hate crimes, but when you look at the statistics, the greatest harm that can come to these children who become adults is from themselves. Suicidal ideation and attempts and completion is extraordinarily high in this community. Now it's important to know why, what is the single greatest thing that can protect these children? And it's for close family to affirm their identity and the studies say it over and over and over and over again, get behind your kid, support your kid. If they want to change their name, then call them by the name they, they choose. If they tell you that they are a different gender or that they are no gender, Affirm. Yeah. Yes. Single greatest protective factor
0: in this community. And and I really appreciate you exclamation pointing that because I sort of feel like it's it's hard for parents to to see that initially, right? It's it's the but yes, other people will act violently. Who's going to love them? There, we you know they won't be able to go certain places. I would never have been an eighth grader who wanted to be changing in the you know athletic director's office because I can't use that. Like that. Think about the social ramifications of that and how and and how. I mean, it's not that the, all the parents that that I come in contact with are always worried about what it looks like for their family or what other people will think. It's also. And what is the impact on my child for walking through the world with other people having all these reactions to them? And, and I keep talking a lot about how there are, there are implications in either direction. And what we're seeing is when you try to make your kid's life easier rather than authentic, um, there is tremendous implication for children's wellness. And that these statistics Because that's the other thing I hear a lot from parents in the beginning when they're still learning is there's so many mental health concerns in this community. Why would I want my child to be a part of this? When you look at the and they assume that there's something inherent to gayness or transness that is related to the depression and anxiety. And I'm like, that's where the bias piece comes in. Yes, what do you want to say about? About that. Well, you see- know, this is
1: another angle of, you know, in the community that we, where we first encountered each other about being, you know, white parents of uh, children of color and all of the learning and unlearning that is required of us to, to be effective, loving, supportive, nurturing parents. I wrote an article a while back about how adoption is in and of itself an adverse childhood experience. Maternal separation trauma is traumatic, no matter how you slice it, and mothers and fathers are not interchangeable. So there's always some measure of trauma that is experienced. Now, the adverse childhood experience relates back to this huge study, ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences, that was looking at long-term health outcomes based on a variety of adverse childhood experiences that covered things like neglect, abuse, uh, witnessing domestic violence, uh, poverty, sexual abuse. And in 10 questions, you answer, on or before your 18th birthday, did you often or very often, and then these questions that sort of encompass all of these, and you come up with a number of these 10 questions. Now, they're not, the, they have expanded to include things like being uh, uh, exposed to terrorism or to war, uh, which it didn't previously have. Um, but also, gender identity should be included, uh, sexual orientation should be included, adoption. Should be you know, specifically included to encompass these adverse childhood experiences. And what they found was that there's a certain number of people, it was a huge study, as you well know. Uh, some people, you know, a small percentage had none. Yeah. Those unicorns, God love them. <laughs> then you have one, people who have one, people who have two, and again, we're looking at those long-term health outcomes, particularly those that can be influenced or exacerbated by stress. So COPD, congestive heart failure, um, autoimmune uh, things, uh, things that can flare, obesity, alcoholism, et cetera, et cetera. So what they found was four was the magic number when you see a huge spike in poorer long-term health outcomes. Now, what it doesn't mean is that if you had four or more adverse childhood experiences, that now you're shooting up in an alley because your life was hard. Right. We're talking about damage to a sympathetic nervous system. Yeah. And that damage, how it plays out in the body is that you are easily triggered. And so you are producing and overproducing cortisol and adrenaline and going and stressing the body globally because of all of this undigested, unmetabolized trauma that sits there, yep. which is part of our work as therapists, is to yeah. identify some of these things and how does it play out? Yeah. So what they um you know they also found out that by the time you got to about six aces, you could see up to a twenty year reduction in your mortality. So where do you put
0: intersex and medical trauma into all that, right? And then the secrecy and the shame because it's all of that, right? It is the it's the medical decisions without consent. It's the it's the secrecy, and again, it, it, you know, like thinking about parents frozen in the headlights in that situation, you know, getting advice from people who did know something about this stuff because who knows how much your parents or other parents know. So they're sitting there like trying to take that all in. And it's, it just is so, it's it's also, I think, rooted, I mean, rooted in the homophobia and transphobia. And the, a lot of assumptions we make, but also that we just, we can't help it in a way to permanently infantilize our kids. Like we, we really think about our kids through high school or like you would want to be a sophomore in high school. And you're not thinking about you as a 34 year old,
1: you know, 44 year old, 23 sexual being. Yeah. Because when you do these cosmetic only surgeries, what happens to a lot of intersex people that have had these surgeries is that you have a lifetime of pain uh incontinence uh difficulty they used to clitorectomize these these babies that had ambiguous enough look if, if that did not look like a clitoris if that started to look like a micropenis well that's not going to do yeah. can't be a man with a micropenis so they would do these surgeries and remove all sensation can you imagine the the horror of it? And we're so aghast and agog about like African, you know, female genital mutilation. We're doing that too. Yeah, right. We're doing that to our kids too. So uh, we need to understand that our children are sexual beings from the word go. Right. Birth, and we want to protect the the safety
0: of their sexual experience as well yeah and, and, the, and so so if you were in a position like if you if somebody shows up in your office or in your in your groups it sounds like groups would be one of the recommendations I really I heard loud and clearly when you say like if this is if this is news that's coming to you people you love in your family there's some indication um, that there were you know it's like that there were some developmental differences because I, I, I noticed and I don't know whether you did it intentionally or not when you were talking you were speaking about a defect in your chromosomes and I, that's an interesting yeah uh, nice touch uh, I think more and more about like it's an evolutionary variation. variation that that happens and I know you were using language that would help people understand this complicated stuff because a lot of us you know glaze over our eyes roll back in our head and we're like huh even though we sat through useless courses and stuff so i know you were communicating in a way that folks would understand but it's but but helping folks imagine that this is an example well, I still of use the language i feel like my body was medically colonized right, right. so
1: yes. i still use the language sometimes of the colonizers. Yes, yeah. as we, as we do sometimes. But it's a good catch and an important one because do we are we using language that
0: pathologizes? And, and wanting parents to see that because so much of what happens in my um and, and the parents need to go through this process. It is with total humility that I meet parents in this place of like, Absolutely. so what went wrong face? Who like? And it, and it is a part of it should i have done more of this should i have done less of this it's your family well what about your uncle or what about your you know and like and and there's this place that people live in as part of the initial churning and understanding um and i really and they have to have a space and place to do that without without judgment and be able to recognize like to even notice that that is rooted in this idea that this 100%. is
1: One of the things that was really important in my journey was to recognize that in one shuffling of the deck, you are the oppressor, and then another shuffling, you are the oppressed. I don't, I'm not more noble. I just, in this shuffling, I know things because I am in the historically marginalized and oppressed group of sexual minorities. So I have that experience. But where I was able to have some, some compassion for my parents was when I was at my son's birth and they the doctors asked me and my husband at the time, who was also white, um, if we planned to circumcise. And I said, well, I, actually, and my husband said. Well, yes, we're going to circumcise. You know, he's going to have enough differences, that, you know, at least let his penis look like his dad's. And I thought to myself, really? <laughs> you think that's what's going to happen? I don't think this was going to happen. happen. <laughs> you no. Know, yeah. So.
0: yeah. You know that these just, and you're right, there's so, they're often made in emotional times. They're made when you're, when you're in that fight or fight place, they're, there there's so many assumptions that drive how we make decisions what's going to keep our kids safe what's going to make them different or freakish and and it is it's this interesting thing of like how would they navigate high school or middle school but to imagine not to imagine not having conversations because this is another piece of the work i do is having hard conversations right like somehow parents believe that to give their children a good life they must never have pain I never have painful conversations. And so to think about excluding a child from a conversation about their bodies and sexual reproduction and parenting and like, and to, and to, it just, it's fascinating because ironically, they probably believed you would feel freakish or broken. However, what ended up happening in the secrecy and the shame and the dishonesty Right, made sure of it. Yeah, you just reinforced this idea of... Here's a beautiful thing.
1: At the National Conference of AISSG, now we have uh, people that, uh, young people that have never been led to, that got to participate in medical decisions. And they are unbothered. And it's so fun to watch how unbothered they are the old guard you know we see each other and you know we'll share some tears and we've got the you know the the trauma that we you know you can only really understand it when you talk to somebody who's had that experience uh but it's so great to watch the young people teenagers young
0: 20s younger than that yeah how just live in it and recognize that our constructs around gender are limiting and that you can be a a varied kind of male female both neither and and live in the in all of that complexity uh and 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 recognize that doesn't have to be something hidden or tucked away well other than slowing down What would what else as we sort of I could talk for hours, but as we wrap, look at wrapping up, what what other resources or recommendations? Keep your knees bent, slow down. And then what other recommendations do you have? find other people who have been through this?
1: Right. Who have because this happens to whole families. Everybody is going to have to do some learning and unlearning and relearning uh, and community is. That's where you do it. You see some people that are, you know, really are over the the big hump and are now able to to speak and and enlighten others and be helpful. So you have, you know, sort of the people who are in that wise place. and you have some people that are right in the very beginning of it, which is, you know, so much information, huge eyes tearing the headlights. But you see that there is a way through this, you have to see that there's a way through this. And as again, as white parents of uh, black children, we also know that representation matters. So, you know, the more we have representation of uh, gender expansive, gender fabulousness and, and variations of how people come into the world and we see that represented in our stories. Um, That's also a really key important thing. And I think from the parental perspective, there's so much worry and guilt. And I think a lot of times what informs that is that when we have trauma and as we, before we started recording, I told you as a psychotherapist in my book, When we live in a capitalistic society that is still largely patriarchal and, you know, rife with homophobia and racism and ableism, I think we're all, no matter how much privilege you carry, we're all traumatized by a system that is based on us and them, haves and have-nots, and that traumatizes all of us. So is to be, for parents to be, gentle with themselves and to understand really to very much internalize and understand that your children aren't having your childhood
0: they're having their childhood (laughs) And this is that's perfect because that's exactly when i started thinking about the different kinds of work that i do it's it's adoption it's race it's it's um gender identity stuff and what i kept coming back to like what is the bridge what is the bridge how do i how do i talk about what i do in a way that has an organized thread or theme and it is it's it's it's, (laughs) i didn't mean this to be pitchy but like pitchy that was a p i didn't mean to be pitchy but (laughs) when i say um like it's it's i think about it's parents you know walking roads less traveled but also when i talk about this it's kids who are living different identities when you are raising a child who is not navigating the same gender race sexual orientation um, you know neural function as you are there it, it's just different and and there are different skills to learn and communities to find and and challenges to push yourself toward and hard work to do doesn't mean there's no hard work in other versions of parenting it just means you're less likely to be prepared for the hard work you have to do and and so and I you don't need to know
1: everything our children because of their individual unique expression how they have come into the world they teach us things we figure out things we need to learn based on what it is to become a better parent we need to have that knees bent continual lifelong learner about how do i shepherd well here's a you know and we also neurodivergent kids so when we think about this is dr russell barkley's analogy we've got a sheep shepherd pasture model. You can only change two of those things, and it isn't the sheep. (laughs) That that is the first time I've heard it said that. I love that. That's another great (laughs) takeaway. We can work on our shepherding. We can modify the pasture, but you aren't going to turn a a llama into a sheep or a
0: sheep into a a rooster. I'd like the roosters here on Kauai to be llamas, actually. Could we work that out? Because I make a lot of noise here early in the morning. I have a new mission now. <laughs> um, yeah, well, thank you. That, that, that's beautiful. I really appreciate this. I learn, I learn every day. And it, and it really, it, it truly is with the humility that I come and sit here and figure out how to nudge parents. It's our work. To do the learning, to do to sit with the discomfort rather than clamping down, and uh, you know, as I said, our fear is going to shape our yeses and our nos with our kids, and it's it's we on this journey for folks parenting kids, navigating gender identities and sexual orientation identities. You know, we we need to be in our in our our reasoning brains and our hearts and our advocate light a fire. I mean, you know, everybody does that differently. So some people may be inclined toward, um, you know, rocketing out of their, their space once they've figured it out and changing the dialogue because the past year, like every time we keep a secret, every time we, I mean, we need to respect our kids' privacy. So I hope that, I mean, I know we didn't even really talk about that much. So, but you have to stay in conversation with your kid about they don't need to be kept secret. They don't need to be kept uh, uninformed, but it is certainly mindful decisions about privacy and include your kid and who knows and what they know and, and how they know and, and be thinking uh, about that as well. But the more that there's secrecy and shame and that's reinforced right. for kids, the more we, we're, we're, we're mucking up a pasture that is just, full of uh, mud and pockets of yuckiness to step in later. Landmines so, and yeah, yeah. fire, yeah. Yes. So finding support in other parents, finding other support and, and seeing representation for your kids and for you, seeing that there's that there's hope again, because sometimes we could talk about the loss and the turmoil and the hard part. We don't get to like the the, the celebration. Celebration, part. yeah yeah we want parents to have and families full families to have space for that too so thank you so much for coming and thank you and, for having me this was and, wonderful yeah it's easy we'll have to do it again we can pick any number of things to hang out and talk about this was the, this was the cursory primer <laughs> yes I love it all right Eden thank you very much oh, thank you Take so much care. Bye. Bye. right well thanks for listening today just a quick note here at the end to say i am so glad you joined and i hope you are too and if you'd like to connect with me more come take a look at my website www.drlaraanderson.com there you can join my newsletter keep in touch and find out what is in the works can also join me for coffee and conversation uh, and Facebook at Common Cord Psychology Services. So check me out those places and I look forward to further connection. I'm glad you were here today.